Amendments, and I'd like to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 12, where we find our Lord's own summary of those commandments and all that they mean in these brief words. In Mark chapter 12, verse 28, where I'm going now, if you have a Bible and you'd like to go there with me, we'll just be reading together verses 28 through 34. And by the way, if you are visiting with us, it's not just a series on the Ten Commandments where we rake your conscience over the coals, although that's uh, often done, and there are plenty of good resources for that if you'd like to do that later. We, we are specifically addressing the common big lies of the world and how that moral compass seeks to reset and redirect and to reorient our walk and mind. Well, from here we are from Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he, that is Jesus, had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God and there is no other but he, and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we too would draw near to that kingdom, that we would hear that word, that we would understand that will of God, that to obey is better than sacrifice, that we might have from the lips of our Lord himself a true and right understanding of all that is good and noble and worthy of those who have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, freely forgiven and given a status as children of God. Oh, teach us as your dear children to be imitators of God, the God who is love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Narcissus in Greek mythology was a very handsome youth that was popular to caught all the lies, eyes of the ladies. I've told you about him before. Narcissus ignored the allurements at one point of a beautiful nymph called Echo. And in, uh, in punishment... The goddess Nemesis decided to punish Narcissus for his calloused rejection of Echo, a daughter of Zeus. Well, as the story goes, one day Narcissus was bending over a clear pool to get a drink, and it was then that Nemesis caused Narcissus to fall in love with his own reflection. And there he remained by the pool, staring at his own image in the water. He wouldn't leave it for anything. He became so preoccupied with himself that he even shunned food and drink until there by the pool at last he died. His love of self proved to be the death of self. 
his self-absorption became, in fact, suicidal. And this is an analogy for our modern world. It is uh, 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 the world casts this spell of self-love upon us, and it's killing us. Just a second as I take a selfie first. <laughs> we live in a culture saturated with the language of self-love, self-actualization, self-care, self-worth, self-affirmation. Uh, and it certainly had its effect on us. It's why I, I love to give you such statistics as these. The Washington Post reported, reported a few years ago that 94% of Americans said that they were above average in honesty, <clears throat> perhaps not in mathematics skills or honesty. Uh, 89% said that they were above average in common sense, 86% above average in intelligence, and 79% above average in looks. Well, this spirit of the age has been very deeply imbibed by the church as well. There's a skit about a modern Bible study where no matter what passage is read, each person concludes, well, what this means to me is that Jesus wants me to be happy. And the verses get increasingly bizarre, of course. Okay, well, what are we talking about? Here's the definition I found on the self-love movement's website. Quote, self-love is the act of putting your own happiness and well-being first, something that is lacking within the current society. Sorry to laugh. Uh, they were not being ironic. Putting our own happiness and well-being first is lacking in our current society? Well, yes, they're pushing this on us on it more. Wow. I haven't read Ali Stuckley's book, You Are Not Enough, and that's okay, Escaping the Toxic Culture of Self-Love, her title. But I did come across a review which listed those five myths which she said are being specifically pushed today under this umbrella, both inside and outside the church. These are the five. She says, uh, you are not enough. That's the first sub-lie. That is to say, you don't need anybody. Sorry, did I say that right? The first sub-lie is, you're enough. You are enough, girlfriend. You don't need anybody. You can do it. So, second sub-lie, you determine your truth. That is what's true for you. It doesn't have to be true for anybody else. Uh, third, you're perfect the way you are. That is to say, you don't have to change one bit for anybody. And the, you're entitled to your dreams, because, you know, you can be just whatever you want to be. And finally, best for last, you can't love others until you love yourself. Hmm, that sounds a bit familiar. Perhaps you can relate to some of these myths and the promise that leaves you increasingly empty. She learned the hard way that she was not enough, and that's okay, as she says in the title of her book, as she found at last her true identity and value in God through Jesus Christ. I quote, me-centered living isn't merely theologically incorrect, but uncomfortable, unsatisfying, and exhausting. Women today feel a constant pressure to improve themselves and just never feel like they're enough. They live their daily lives disheartened, disillusioned, and disappointed. 
That's because joy doesn't come from a new self-improvement strategy, or I might add by comparing yourself favorably to the other person on Instagram. It comes from rooting their identity who, in God, who God says they are, and what he has done on their behalf. Okay, well that lays out our, our project for the day, and we'll come back to that, but of course we are uh, seeking to have the Lord reorient our internal moral compass And in the series on the Ten Commandments, I'd like to take these next few weeks to cover with you this summary given by our Lord uh, of, uh, of all his will to love the Lord our God with all that is in us and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. But is that two commandments, you might ask, or three, as some are suggested? And can we even love others until we love ourselves? That's a fair question, I suppose, as people are pushing that on us. Is our Lord teaching us that self-love is good or bad or just a fact of life? That is to say, should we be loving ourselves in some way that we are also to love others in that way? Well, perhaps you've already got your mind made up about all this. How typical of you. You are in good company, because it turns out that people all through the centuries have wrestled with this question, and narcissism predated Facebook. Um, This question has actually plagued the minds of some of the greatest thinkers in history, as I'll quote a couple of them to you, and people have generally fallen into three camps about this matter of self-love. And before I go to the commandment next week to love our neighbor as ourself, I thought I would take this little time to figure out, well, what kind of love are we to have for ourselves, if at all? Uh, so we would be prepared to the, for the study next week, and then the week after that, of course, we'll get the big one of loving God with all that is in us. But this matter of loving our neighbor as ourself, what, what are we to understand? Well, The first big view, the big camp, the big banner is that self-love is natural. Self-love is natural, some teach. That is to say that uh, what Jesus is referring to here is not a vice or a virtue, but merely a a fact of life. That is to say, there's an instinct in us all to seek our own happiness, to care for ourselves and our own needs to look out for our welfare, which is called self-love. So, as John Stott put it, who holds this view, this self-love is just a fact of our humanity that Scripture recognizes and tells us to use as a standard. He's not commanding anything. He's not condemning anything here. In other words, it's just a fact. Don't make too much of it. That's a common view I noticed in Several study Bibles, not to get you reading the fine print right now, but uh, you know it's a it's a it's a pretty uh, well established view. Certainly, the idea is very good in many places. So, for example, in Ephesians five, where we read, "Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for her." So, husbands ought to love their own wives. It says, "As their own bodies." For listen. He who loves his wife loves himself. There we go. No one ever hated his own flesh, it says, but nourishes and cherishes it, 
just as the Lord does the church, for we are members of his body. So, certainly it is just a fact of human nature that people nourish and cherish their own flesh, and the, the Lord calls this uh, loving themselves in his word, okay? So it is to love yourself in that sense. Of course, people sometimes do hate their own flesh and even do it positive harm. Paul knows that full well, that people make, for example, unhealthy choices or uh, even from time to time commit suicide, namely Judas, we just read about from Acts chapter 1. So he is not seeking to deny that reality. He's at least speaking of what people do or ought to do as they care for themselves in a proper way. Uh, And we could say that it is right, even moral, to care for ourselves and our flesh in that way. Um, As we learned in the Sixth Commandment, it's wrong to abuse your body, okay, so by way of review. But when Paul calls this loving ourselves, that we take care of our bodies, that we should therefore take care of our wives the same way, he's probably just speaking naturally about people don't hate their own flesh. They take care of it, they nourish it, they cherish it. And so he may mean nothing more, at least, than, than caring for your own flesh is just a natural act that people can be counted on to perform. You're all looking pretty well fed. In the same way, many conclude that Jesus is not commending self-love by saying love your neighbor as yourself. He is simply referring to what is. He's just telling it like it is for creatures like you and me. We are just to love our neighbor in this natural way that we naturally love ourselves. Okay, got the first view. Self-love is natural. He's not commending it. He's not condemning it. He's just using what is to say what ought to be. The second view uh, is that uh, self-love is sinful. The second view that Jesus describes uh, in this commandment, according to this view, that that Jesus is describing a sinful self-love. And this has a very impressive list of defenders, by the way, from the past and today. Let me quote that Prince of Expositors, John Calvin. In the entire law, he says, we do not read one syllable that lays a rule upon man for the advantage of his own flesh. And obviously, since men were born in such a state that they are all too much inclined to self-love, and however much they deviate from truth, they still keep self-love. There was no need of a law that would increase, or rather enkindle, this already excessive love. He's saying that this excessive love in man is, is bad. It's already there. There's no, there's no commending this, certainly. Hence it is, he says, very clear that, it, we, that we keep the commandments not by loving ourselves, but by loving God and neighbor, that he lives the best and holiest life who lives and strives for himself as little as he can, and that no one lives in a worse or more evil manner than he who lives and strives for himself alone and thinks about and seeks only his own advantage, end quote. Thanks for the 
long quote. Avadi said it well, a little technical, but surely he's right on target about the main problem in our hearts, which is surely self-love. And that is what's unfortunately too often pressed today. So when we prayed earlier, you noticed at the beginning of that confession, I took right from 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, It says that in the last days, men will be, first up, lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God, he goes on to say. And this common self-love that puts you in the rightful place of God in your heart, this self-absorption, this uh, self-worship, this self-centeredness, in so many ways, is the heart of the problem. So this self-worship, self-centeredness, are passions of terrible power and effect in our lives, both spiritually and otherwise. And so, going back to modern psychology for a second, when modern psychology begins to kindle these naturally selfish affections for self-absorption and calls it self-love, or self-esteem, they're calling evil good and good evil. Can't condemn everything that is said, but surely this is a great evil. And many people have pointed that out. One more, a modern Christian counselor writes, any form of self-love is not of God and can lead only to destruction. The psychologists are not wrong in observing that man seeks security and significance. The church is wrong in failing to point this out as a mark of our fallen nature. That is to say, to seek security and significance is a mark of our fallen nature. This search is hardly characteristic of what Paul describes as the new man in Christ. This new man, he says, uh, doesn't seek itself at all. Hmm. You're looking confused. What can we say about this? Well, we, we must agree that uh, surely the me movement is very wrong to foster this wicked self-love and self-worship and self-absorption, which is uh, leading us toward narcissism more and more as a culture. But I also want you to recognize that this statement is wrong also when he says any form of love, of self-love, is not of God. You're saying, okay, but, but wait a minute. All right, I'm going to make the case in just a second. But I will at least point out to you the terrific problem created in this second view. So that when the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself, are you to understand then that your sinful self-love and self-worship is to become the pattern of your righteous love for your neighbor. That what you are to abhor and put off in yourself is what you are to kindle toward your neighbor. Can what Calvin calls a violent emotion arising from our natural depravity then become the rule to guide us in our conduct toward others? Should we take this sinful preoccupation and apply it to neighbor to fulfill God's law? Well, that's a problem, I say. I'm about to make a positive argument, but I just wanted to show you that uh, there are some problems when we take this, I think, majority view. 
So we've learned that some people understand this self-love, mentioned by Jesus, love your neighbor as yourself, to be simply the natural fact. The commandment would read something like this, love your neighbor as you naturally, instinctively, love yourself as all men by nature love themselves. Others take the self-love spoken here as sinful, so that the commandment would therefore read, love your neighbor as you should not love yourself. But you do nevertheless, so give your neighbor the love that you are sinfully giving to yourself. All right. Well, there is a third alternative, which I would like to commend to you, that uh, self-love is good, or at least good self-love is good. Taking the commandment this way, love your neighbor in the same way as at least you ought to love yourself. This view says that self-love The self-love that puts yourself in the place of God is wicked. But recognizes that the Bible teaches another kind of self-love that it calls self-love that is a duty as well as a virtue. For example, Proverbs 19 verse 8 tells us that he who gets wisdom loves his own soul. Is that not commending a certain righteous self-love to us? Should we not love our own soul? The implication is certainly yes. Bad self-love is very bad. And we should not love either ourselves or others in that way. Good self-love is good. And we must love ourselves and others in that way. Am I persuading you yet? It says the same thing in the opposite way, by the way, in the Proverbs. He who sins against me wrongs his own soul, and all those who hate me love death. Or or, or Jesus puts it in a similar way. What will it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for your own soul? Don't you care about your soul? Don't you have some love for your soul? Then why would you go to gain the whole world and lose your soul, he's saying. Okay. The point I'm making here is that this is called self-love, and the Bible says this idea certainly in many times, in many ways, and in various words, that if you have any true love for yourselves as you ought, and your soul, and your eternal life, which surely you must, if you have any thirst for any true pleasure and true delight for that matter, you must, you must seek these things in the place, the only place where they can be found in the Lord. And uh, as I say, uh, this is related in various ways and kindled and encouraged in us as we sang last week from Psalm 36. Oh, how precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings, they are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. We should surely see that our highest and greatest pleasure is in the Lord, and if, and if we have any sanity about us, but no matter about doing right or wrong, but if, it's, if, if we just are to have any care for ourselves, we should seek. We should seek our highest and greatest pleasure in the Lord. David says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. 
often abused passage perhaps, but uh, good in, in all that it says and implies. Moses rejected the passing pleasures of sin and counted the reproach of Christ greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. And the people were encouraged to do the same thing. That as Moses refused some temporary, wicked, lesser pleasures in order that he might obtain the infinite, holy reward in Christ. And even when we are being told to hate our life in this world, as we are told, it's in order that we might be able to gain it and keep it and enjoy it for life eternal. So, do you begin to see what I'm talking about? Okay, well, I, I, I quoted a few heavyweights before uh, against this view, so I have to quote a couple for it. Here is Augustine. It is impossible that one should love God and not love himself. In fact, he alone has a proper love of himself who loves God. Since a man can be said to have sufficient love for himself if he seek earnestly to obtain the supreme and perfect good, and there is, this is nothing other than God, who can doubt that he who loves God loves himself? Augustine says, look, if you want to truly be happy, if you want to truly love yourself and seek the best for yourself and care for yourself and nourish and cherish yourself, you have to seek the Lord. And when you have done so, you have fulfilled this commandment. Aquinas takes the same approach. Or here's a little more from Jonathan Edwards, who can always be counted on to express it brilliantly. In some respects, wicked men do not love themselves enough. They do not love themselves as much as the godly do. They do not love that which is indeed their true happiness. Therefore, it's said of wicked men that they hate their own souls. But in other respects, they love themselves too much. Okay, so clearly admitting there is such a thing as sinful self-love. He's not at all favoring that. But he says, really, when we get down to it, wicked people don't love themselves nearly enough. They are choosing very low, base, temporary pleasures. That's going to that's ruin them. It's going to destroy them. They don't love themselves nearly enough, as they should. Is that you? That you are not loving yourself, seeking good for yourself, seeking to delight yourself, seeking your highest and best pleasures and your true life with a capital L. Maybe you actually hate yourself. Maybe you are actually killing yourself. Maybe it is that narcissus in you that is so warping your self-view that you think it's more and more self-love and it's actually less and less life until you die. If you have any true love for yourself, you have to go to the source of love and get more. Well, here is the great antidote to the cultural lie which I began with today. You must repudiate that wicked self-love with all your heart, the kind of self-love that does not admit the true sinfulness and selfishness and guilt that does not humble oneself before God. You must reject all self-love that is unwilling to repent of sins and lesser pleasures, and confess an absolute dependence and 
need upon the mercy of God. You must reject that self-love that refuses to consider the interests of others as more important than your own even. That's not compatible with the fear of God and the submission to his will, come wind, come weather. The kind of self-love that makes you the center of the universe. That is clearly right out. But there is a proper and far better self-love and self-seeking which you must have, which you are going to be wicked if you do not have. You must seek your own true life, highest good, deepest satisfaction and pleasure. As Psalm 16, verse 2 reminds us, O Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. If you want good for yourself, then you must realize the source of every good and perfect gift that comes down from above, James says. Okay, furthermore, the very thing that is stealing away your humanity, your happiness, your true self-love is turning away from the Lord and his wisdom and seeking to love yourself in a way that's like Narcissus, killing yourself. That's hating yourself, hating your soul, as Solomon put it. The world tells us to love ourselves, yes, but without God. And that's the rub, you see. Love yourself, even though your life is a meaningless accident, going nowhere in particular, ending soon in death, and there is no overarching purpose or meaning to begin with. That human beings are just the uh, atoms that make them up, and sooner or later those atoms, well, sooner rather than later, those atoms are going to decompose into something else, and you're going to become dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind, said the great philosophers in Kansas. Well, so go love yourself. And, and, and Whitney Houston, with her magnificent voice, says, this is the greatest love of all. Which I can't say without sadness, because uh, I used to listen to her growing up. She's the most awarded female singer ever. And such a tragic illustration of this very point. That the greatest love of all is happening to me. Learning to love yourself, it is the greatest gift of all. And she died of a drug overdose. Well, you see where that kind of greatest love will get you, not to put too fine a point on it. Now, we can add to what we have learned in this. That as people made in the image of God, as I've taught you elsewhere, we have an inherent, true nobility, dignity, self-esteem, and self-worth, which far surpasses any cultural or certainly Darwinian idea that we are merely intelligent baboons. And so as C.S. Lewis put it, I would prefer to combat the I'm special feeling, not by the thought, I'm no more special than anyone else, but by the feeling, everyone is as special as me. So you see, we must depart from this, uh, this killing idea. Um, Christianity is humanism. Got your attention with that, didn't I? And I realize that's not what humanists will tell you. But Christianity is the only view worthy of the name humanism. 
That's why Christians typically talk about secular humanism. Secular humanism. A careful choice of words. Because when you call something secular humanism, you do imply there's something else, right? I mean, if you say secular humanism, then you've got to say there's something called sacred humanism, and that's right. Christianity is sacred humanism, and the only thing worthy of the dignity of man. Secular humanism says there is no creator to worship. There is no redeemer to love. There's no image of God to honor in my neighbor, certainly. There is no future life to prepare for, no judgment to fear, and no glory to inherit. And furthermore, you are not inwardly free until you embrace this. Christianity completely reverses that and says that the worship, the love, the honor, the expectation of the future, and all that that humanism utterly rejects are the most fundamental things about humanity, the rock-bottom realities of human living apart from which our most basic human instincts and intuitions are thrown away, and you will have to take drugs if you have that view, because it is so painful. You are not inwardly free until you admit this, since man has no meaning, no joy, no freedom, no expectation without God. That kind of humanism Secular humanism is what turns man into an animal, or to borrow one secular humanist phrase, a useless passion, said Sartre. And so both Christianity and secular humanism see the other as utterly destructive. Each one views the other as ruinous and wrong-headed. There are two opposite kinds of humanism in the world, one secular and one sacred, and this is the essential difference And that's why we say secular humanism. Or if you wanted a more descriptive term, certainly more pejorative, you might call it secular animalism, since we say you are dehumanizing us, treating man as no more than an animal with an itch, and calling that self-love. How low and base. How destructive of all that God has made us to be. And the more that secularism takes hold in our mind, the more that we are returning back to humanism in its pre-Christian form. As the Darwinian scholar William Proveen puts it very plainly, let me summarize my view on what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. And these are basically Darwin's views, he says. There are no gods, no purposes, and no goal-directed forces of any kind. There is no ultimate foundation for ethics, no meaning in life, and no free will for humans either. End quote. Now go love your neighbor. You see, you see where it gets you. Bertrand Russell, one of the most brilliant atheists of the 20th century, Nobel Prize winner, uh, for literature, even though he was a mathematician, polymath, he says, we are the product of causes that had no provision of the end they were achieving. The hopes, fears, loves, and beliefs of our mind are just the outcome of the accidental coalition of atoms. Only in the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation be henceforth built. Wow. feeling like an overdose? If that's what believed, that's, that's what I believed, I would seriously think about it. 
On the other hand, a few weeks ago I gave you my greatest argument for the dignity of human life, of all human life. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel, hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. And you will never understand this world or your life as you should until you know the one who has taken our humanity up to himself. No greater honor could be paid to this race of dust. No greater demonstration of the now transcendent value of human life. No more unyielding argument for any true dignity of ourselves and others can be imagined. That that God the maker took humanity upon himself now and forever in Jesus. And certainly now as a Christian, I know myself to have been beloved and chosen by God and precious to him, having loved me from all eternity. The Bible says we are therefore children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. This is our great confidence that the King of Kings has adopted us as his sons and daughters. And second, them I know myself is redeemed, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. And third, I may know myself as born anew and indwelt by the Holy Spirit and with the life-giving power of the risen Christ in myself as the temple of God. The temple of God. John Wesley uh, preached a lot to the lower classes. Uh, There was a group of Bristol miners um, recently with these blackened faces that were swept white with the tears as they heard him preach. They became devoted believers, and they had this hymn still in some Methodist hymnals. On all the kings of earth with pity I look down and claim in virtue of my birth a never-ending crown. That's how these squalid miners felt after they realized who they were in Christ. With all the kings of earth, with pity I look down. You see the, the true foundation that we are able to have for love for our neighbor, certainly for our brothers and sisters in Christ, and even, as I say, for ourselves, the true dignity, the true understanding that we are to have as we are people in God's image and God's likeness. Loved and redeemed, especially in Jesus. And the promise of the gospel. Perhaps this is why the Lord has brought you here today to hear this. The promise of the gospel is that all that you had been seeking in such self-love endeavors, all that you crave as a human being, all that you have been created to desire for yourself, is found in the Lord. There is a great cost that must be paid, and Jesus has paid it. And it is my joy to tell you how you may truly love yourself. It is coming to God through the cross of Christ. What will you gain if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Come to God through Jesus Christ. And then at last, you will have life with a capital L, which begins now and lasts forever. Well, let us pray.
God, forgive us for all the times, this very day even, that we have portrayed ourselves as more important, more wise, more sovereign than you. We pray for a humble heart and that you would bring us very low before your throne. And having been brought low, we pray that as it is written, you would fill us with delights from the river of your pleasures. With you is the fountain of life. In your light, in your light alone, we are able to see light. We have put on the new man being renewed in knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. As you made us in your image, so now you are remaking us that we might begin even now as works in progress to rise from that low animal estate. Oh, give us something more to long for. Something that as we begin this study today in reverse order, something that even can begin with us. That for our very selves, for our own soul's sake, we might seek you and find you and revel in you and understand from you what you have truly done for us in our redemption especially. We pray that Christ would be honored more and more in us as the people of his hand. May he increase while we